logged. The commanding officer is aboard. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Elements Gear podcast. I'm your host, Taylor, aka N7 Lionheart. Today, we're going to be doing a retrospective about the very first Mass Effect. So, what that means is we're going to be doing a deep dive on the gameplay, story, lore, and production of the very first game. So, consider this your spoiler warning because I'm going to be getting into some deep territory here. So, Mass Effect was released on November 20th, 2007 in North America, and later it was released over Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. Summer 2008, it was ported to PC, and then later in 2012, it was ported, ported to uh, PlayStation 3. Production began in 2004, but uh, the initial IP pitch was made shortly after they completed Knights of the Old Republic in 2003. Knights of the Old Republic 2 was, of course, given to Obsidian Studios, and we never got Knights of the Old Republic 3. When they began working on it, it, the working title for it was SFX. About a year and a half after the initial IP pitch, the in on the, September 15, 2003, the team debated several names like Space Age, Element Zero, Threshold, Epsilon Effects, Star Citadel, Fractured Helix, and Oculon. You can never agree on any of them. Project lead Casey Hudson pitched the name Rainbow. Kind of in the name of Tom Clancy's Rainbow Six. But the series title was suggested by BioWare co-founder Greg Zeschik. The Mass Effect name arose out of the initial idea of the Mass Relay being a time travel device and the concept of one individual being able to change the course of history. This is all, of course, from the Mass Effect fandom in the trivia. The Mass Effect wiki from the Mass Effect tri- in the trivia section. They produced six covers for the original Mass Effect that weren't used. When conceptualizing the game in its trilogy, it was intended to be cinematic in nature, presenting Shepard in a uniform manner, and and presenting Shepard in a uniform manner was a byproduct of this. Originally, Mass Effect was actually planned to have multiplayer, so when it actually showed up in 3, it shouldn't be that big of a deal to everybody, but everybody freaks out about uh, multiplayer. And then jumping over to Wikipedia to talk about some of the production for it. So they began pre-production in early 2004. Shortly after the Microsoft Windows version of KOTOR came out, and the development team was already experienced with Xbox consoles, so they decided to develop the game for uh, the Xbox 360. They had a dev team of 130 people, and the first six to eight months were spent conceiving how the game would look. Aspect uses Unreal Engine 3 as a groundwork, and the team developed additional components for advanced digital actors, space exploration, space com- squad combat, resulting in BioWare's largest programming project at the time. During the game's three to four year development cycle, most of the team had been, most of the time had been devoted to development of these technologies. Because they wanted to create a memorable story, they of course envisioned it to be a trilogy from the very beginning. And instead of developing a, or designing a role playing game with a blank slate character, they decided to give Commander Shepard a little bit of more of a background, talk a little bit more about how the background system works uh, when I get to story. But you know, it helps give a level of intensity and cinematic power because Shepard is an established character. They wanted to use digital actors that allowed developers to create conversations where characters would speak by using facial expressions and body movement, kind of like in real life and in movies. And they wanted to evolve the, apparently they wanted to evolve the pseudo turn-based combat of Knights of the Old Republic into a real-time third-person shooter interface. The combat was meant to offer the tactics and customization of a role-playing game, but through a simpler and more intuitive user interface. 
It was also designed so that players could not need to press many buttons to the squad's different track attack combinations. The team worked closely with Microsoft on several elements of it. They also wanted to create a great sense of discovery. You know, because the very first game, it, it does, there's a lot of discovery in it. Jude Carpenter was the lead, was one of the lead writers. Um, he was a senior writer for Nights of the Old Republic. Um, he came back and he actually, he wrote a lot of the dialogue from what I can tell. Um, and he actually wrote the companion book, Mass Effect Revelation, which focused on Admiral Anderson in his early days and uh, his protagonist, uh, Saren Artarius. A lot of, there are several films that kind of went into, uh, that gave a lot of influence, like Star Wars, obviously Alien, Star Trek, something that speaks to me, Blade Runner, <laughs> uh, Starship Troopers, and funnily enough, Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. That one kind of gets me. I'm not really sure how that one fits in. I mean, it is what it is. <laughs> the team chose Jack Wall, who also penned the music for Bioware's 2005 title, Jade Empire, as the main composer. Sam Hewlett came on and helped. And they also added composers Richard Jacques and David Cates to help uh, produce the score for the game. And the game went gold on October 22nd, 2007. That was all from straight Wikipedia, not the Mass Effect wiki. From everything I've read, the production for the first Mass Effect went pretty much as other Bioware titles went. The main difference being that um, they were building a new IP and you know they, had, they built some new technologies to go along with it and a lot of stuff went into it. Honestly, like from, there, from what I could tell, there wasn't a whole lot of drama. There was some, you know, there's some fun, you know, things that came up after the game came out, or recently, like, Commander Shepard was originally created as a female, like I said, the thing about the multiplayer, uh, all that stuff is interesting, but I mean, you know, doesn't really show a whole lot of there being a bunch of issues with the production. So, from what we can tell, there's not a lot of, there wasn't a whole lot of time. Unless, you know, of course, more information comes out later, but, you know, that's more information. <laughs> From Mass Effect, Secondary Codex, Humanity and the Systems Alliance, N7. The Alliance Military Vocational Code System classifies the career path of all serving personnel. The MVC consists of one letter and one number. A soldier's NVC indicates proficiency, not rank. The letter notes career path, the number indicates level of experience, as indicated by service record, technical scores, and commendations. All 26 letters are used, and numbers run from 1 to 7. N is the letter code for Special Forces Personnel. So, I want to talk about gameplay before I got the story because story is obviously going to be the big thing that we talk about because the story of the first Mass Effect is its selling point. You don't buy the first game for its combat. I mean, I'm sure there's somebody out there who did, but honestly, like, it's now, its combat has aged pretty roughly. It definitely feels like a 14-year-old game, 13, 14-year-old game. Um, as for third-person shooter elements, uh, your main means of offense are weapons and talents. So, you start the game. When you start the game, you select one of 
six classes soldier infiltrator vanguard adept engineer and sentinel soldier infiltrator and vanguard focus on weapons along with talents infiltrator engineer and sentinel have uh tech abilities tech abilities being stuff like being able to short uh, out shields, sabotage weapons, hack into AI enemies, stuff like that. One of the things that Mass Effect introduced was a ability called Biotics, which is basically being able to control dark matter, dark energy, and you could like basically telepathy or using the Force. So if you, the only classes that were Biotic were Vanguards, Adepts, and Sentinels. And which class you were also determined what uh, weapons you could use. If you were a adept, engineer, or sentinel that had no combat training, you could only use the pistol. If you were an infiltrator, you could use the uh, sniper rifle and the pistol. Vanguard was shotgun and pistol. Soldier had everything. They had access to assault rifles, which on easier difficulties are the way to go. Uh, shotguns, sniper rifles, and pistols. They also had access to heavy armor. You had to have combat skills in order to access stronger armor. So, Soldier immediately started off with medium armor and they could access heavy armor. Infiltrator and Vanguard had access to medium armor. The rest of the classes could only wear light armor. The armor, of course, heavy armor has more straight up damage and shield protection. But honestly, the light armor, light and medium armor can get the job done. Uh, recently, when I was playing through it on a harder difficulty, there was a good chunk of the game after even after I unlocked heavy armor heavy armor skill for my soldier. There was several missions where I wore medium armor just because it was the best one that I had. A big part of the Mass Effect gameplay experience is obviously going to be the RPG elements. You have a range of skills like you have skills in each of your weapons. Depending on your class, you have different abilities like throw. If you're a biotic, you have throw. You have I think you have warp at that level. I think you have singularity, uh, stuff like that. If you have tech abilities, you have stuff like, like I mentioned before, the overload where you can drop the shields and sabotage, stuff like that. Your weapon abilities were stuff that like overcharged your weapons. So assault rifle had, I think it was, I don't think it was called turbocharge at the time, but it's basically turbocharge now, where you would just start, you could shoot endlessly into an enemy for a short amount of time with perfect accuracy and your gun wasn't overheat. Uh, shotguns had what was called carnage which would shoot a giant basically death ball. Sniper rifles had a single shot attack which was supposed to do high damage and pistols had what was called marksman. I think it was called marksman which was kind of somewhere between assault rifle and sniper rifles. But they could do a lot of damage in a short amount of time. You know, each level you get a couple of you get a couple of uh, skill points that you can put in your character. You distribute those among stuff that stuff plus also your persuasion skills. The persuasion skills being intimidate or persuade. Those kind of you know those die up go into your paragon or renegade points. Obviously, I'll talk about more about paragon or renegade later when we get into the story. Basic combat is. Early, early, early cover-based shooting. So what I mean by that is you have access to cover and using cover is paramount to your success, especially on harder difficulties. However, it's not as fluid as, say, Gears of War. 
even though Gears of War came out before this, they hadn't really adopted the cover shooting that Gears had quite had. They later did Mass Effect 2, but that's story for another time. Also, your uh, weapons all pretty much controlled the same. Uh, so you have two different assault rifles. They're both automatic fire assault rifles. Just one could had more damage. The other one could fire for longer. Your sniper rifles were a single. You could get multiple shots out, but every time you fired, Shepard made a reload animation. Even though that kind of goes against the lore, which I'll talk about later. The pistols all controlled the same. Shotguns all controlled the same. So the the weapons all basically controlled the same. It's just they had different properties. And then you know. They did something interesting with achievements. Your achievements unlocked uh, upgrades. For instance, you get the achievement for killing so many enemies with, enemies with an assault rifle as a soldier on another playthrough. It doesn't even have to be a new game plus. If you choose like if you choose a class that doesn't have an assault rifle, so any other class, you had the ability to unlock assault rifles for that particular class. And, like, you still carried those weapons, even if when you were those class, if you didn't have the ability. It's just if you went to use them, you were not very good with that weapon. Your aim was terrible. Uh, you didn't do a whole lot of damage. You, you, you couldn't level it up to where it was a more effective weapon. Like I said, assault rifles on easier difficulties makes the game a walkthrough. Now, on the tougher difficulties, it's all about the shotgun and the pistol. The shotgun, you know, knocks enemies down, and the pistol does a lot more damage per shot than the assault rifle does, which is very important. Honestly, I found the two rifles, the sniper rifle and the assault rifle, to they got the assault rifle got the job done. The sniper rifle was almost useless. The only time I used it was there's a mission where you go into a canyon and there's a sniper. On an elevated position, I tried to shoot, and it's really hard to shoot him without having a sniper rifle. And when I would shoot him, it would wouldn't do a whole lot of damage. Given this was earlier on in the game, but a sniper rifle should still act like a sniper rifle. You hit something in the head with it, it should probably go down, <laughs> or at least do a good chunk of damage. The wep you know, the weapons they all had their skills and whatnot. You also had the ability to tell your squad mates what to do. Now. Originally, when they showed off Mass Effect, they showed you being able to switch between your characters, your squad mates, and telling them what to do. This was from like the E306 press conference when they showed Mass Effect off. They showed you being able to switch between characters. That's not how it worked at all. <laughs> uh, you had you could tell your the other squad mates what to do, but they you couldn't control them directly. And then. Another interesting thing is each, which they, I kind of hated that they got rid of it, but I mean, it fit the combat of two and three, but they brought it back with Mass Effect Andromeda is your individual skills have cooldowns. So if for instance, I used throw on an enemy, throw automatically goes into cooldown, but I can still use lift on another enemy, which I mean, obviously you would want to use lift then throw and then, you know, warp and then. <laughs> then you would probably drop a singularity somewhere. But use all those abilities, every every uh, class had access to Adrenaline Rush, which would, which would restart all of your cooldowns, and then Adrenaline Rush would automatically go into a longer cooldown. Each class also had access to um, a, a shield boosting ability. 
which you know obviously helped especially on harder difficulties combat uh is pretty straightforward there are some tougher sections especially later on once you start getting into the mainline quests but very early it's pretty straightforward and for the most part it stays straightforward you show up you take cover you shoot at some enemies use abilities to get the best of them some later missions like when you're in the thorian's lair you're going to be doing a lot of using your shotgun a lot because it's close quarters you have to be knocking enemies down in order to stay alive and the shotgun does heavy amount of damage but the thorian level is one of the areas that really upset me because i always play as a soldier and in my head cannon that fits shepherd but i always have um, in the first game i always have a biotic with me because the biotics do great stuff so i had uh caden with me i go down there and uh there's a they spawn a bunch of clones of this one asari character and she's standing right in front of a ledge i'm like hey i, I hit the weapon the power wheel button I hit for throw from Caden. Like, okay, he's going to knock her off the side, and we're going to be done, and we're going to kill her off right out the gate. It's going to be great. That's not what happens. He takes a solid, like, four seconds to hit the throw. By that time, she's moved because, like, she naturally just moves over to one side. It doesn't knock her off the ledge. It just knocks her down. And that section, there's a save at that point. And I had the tactical save to get through that section. It's pretty rough. When I was playing on a harder difficulty. So that was always annoying because I always try to get it done. It might be different with Shepard as a biotic. I'll have to go back and try. But I don't, like I said, I don't normally play as uh, anything other than a soldier. Just because in my head cannon. That's how it works. But anyways, getting off topic. You also, a lot of the gameplay... Whenever you come to a, or in a has to do with gameplay. Um, whenever you come to a quote unquote uncharted world, uh, the Normandy drops you off in a tank called the Mako. The Mako is your reconnaissance vehicle, basically. If you haven't heard of the Mako, it's an interesting uh, concept. So, in theory, the Mako is cool. It's a tank. It, it has assault, it has uh, guns, it has a cannon, it can jump, it can go wherever you want, for the most part. In theory, that sounds awesome. In practice, with some of the level designs, it's, it can be kind of rough. So, the, uh, especially on harder difficulties, the make goes pretty weak. It can only take some damage before it goes. Also, you start climbing hill hills, it slows down a lot. So you'll be sitting there climbing up a hill, going, 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 going. It'll take a solid like minute and a half to climb a small mountain. And then if you hit that one section, going up the mountain, you hit the one section that's straight vertical. Well, you're going backwards and you can't really stop your momentum. By the time you finally stop your momentum and start going a different direction, you're halfway down the mountain and there goes another you know 45 seconds sometimes you'll be sitting there climbing you'll get stuck on an area of like okay maybe if i use my jump jet on the tank maybe that'll help so you jump and then no you're in a worse position than you were. 
two seconds ago. But they do do some interesting stuff with the Mako. I didn't personally hate the Mako sections. I just recognize that there are some sections that they really needed to work on. And they really needed to fix how the Mako drived. Because, I mean, it's just, you push the analog stick forward and it goes forward. And then, you know, you can make it turn and stuff like that. And then you can stop and you control which way you're looking. which what, Whichever way you're looking is the way the cannon. And which way your guns are kind of looking, I guess. Or firing at. But they do do some interesting stuff, like uh, the Thresher Maul attacks. So Thresher Mauls are these giant worm creatures that come out of the ground. They're kind of like... Um, of course, they remind everybody of Graboids from Tremors or the giant worms from Dune. But in all honesty, they kind of look like Chinese dragons. That... A mix between a Chinese dragon and like a praying mantis. And you know, they come out of the ground, they have claws, and they spit acid at you. You have to dodge the acid. If you don't dodge the acid, you'll take a couple hits and you die and you have to start out. And the Thresher Maws are bullet sponges. You sit there fighting, it takes several minutes to kill a Thresher Maw in the makeup. And you don't kill the Thresher Maw on foot in the first game, you just can't do it. <laughs> Like I said, the Thresher attacks are cool. Anytime you have to fight a Gath dropship, that's pretty cool. One of the later missions, one of the, the last section of the Mako has a long trench run, and the very last part of it, when you're timed and you have to get to a, a relay, that section's pretty cool. For the most part, though, the Mako's pretty subpar. They added a cool section in Bring Down the Sky, which was the one on the asteroid. Where you couldn't, you had to stop the Mako at a certain distance, otherwise you would run into some mines. They had some turrets on rails that would move back and forth. That was pretty cool. But like I said, for the most part, the Mako was subpar. Uh, there is definitely room for improvement. But, I mean, other than that, the gameplay, you know, the Mako was a big part of the gameplay. Basic combat. You know, there's a lot, those two make up the bulk of your gameplay experience. Other than your conversations, which, the conversations were, how they did conversations at the first Mass Effect was revolutionary. Like, it changed gaming. Because uh, after that, before that, it was all, you had your lines in a row. After that, a lot of things started using dialogue or versions of dialogue wheels. Bioware still uses the dialogue wheel. And the dialogue wheel, it would have, you know, it would have a couple options. On one side, you would have investigate, which is usually where you can ask questions and stuff. And that would be on the left. Any question, anything on the left, normally, uh, if there was multiple things on the right, anything on the left normally were questions that made the conversation last longer. Anything on the right normally got you to closer to the end of the conversation. Um, the right also, uh, your things on the right also determined your Paragon Renegade skin, your morality status. So, you had, your middle was neutral, your top was Paragon, your bottom was Renegade. And that was also where Persuasion came in. Your Persuasion checks were actually usually on the left. If you could use one if it was like you could, if it was a, 
use one or there was different possibilities of persuading somebody depending on what you did it was the conversations were intuitive but also could be because of the different ways conversations could go it could get kind of uh, complicated but at the end of the day it was still a lot of times it would be you pick this and like the dialogue will sorry I'm getting off track uh, so you would pick a, a subject to talk about, and sometimes it was, or you would pick a line to say, and sometimes it was the same line, just repeated in a different fashion, or not really different at all. The dialogue, the way, also the dialogue will, it didn't show everything that you're going to say. Going to say. It was just a brief, brief little uh, summary. Or at least they thought it was a brief summary, because there was a couple of times where you click something like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. You'd click on it, and Shepard would say something totally different, like, whoa, what the hell? I didn't say that. I didn't want to say that. That makes me come across like an asshole. <laughs> that happens a handful of times. You also have, other than, you know, dialogue, you also have resource management. The resource management isn't like for crafting and stuff. Um, you have Omnigel for opening doors and containers quickly. You also have to manage your uh, inventory, which you know you have a collection of armors and guns. Omni tools, which are like little risk computers, biotic amplifiers, which you know can make your character's biotics better. Uh, grenade upgrades for Shepard specifically. You also have mods for your guns. And then, you know, once you start getting close to the item level, you have, or the item limit, you have to start either sell off all your stuff or you have to start converting stuff to Omnigel. Normally, it's a mix of the two because converting stuff to Omnigel takes time. However, having Omnigel can make the game a lot easier. You sit there, you do a, try to do a door code and you fail, you just throw some Omnigel on it, boom. Um, it also helps repair the makeup, but you still needed credits because you needed to be able to buy stuff because, you, you know, there was no crafting, it was all buying or finding. So if you couldn't find an armor, a better armor, you go to the Citadel or your requisitions officer on the Normandy and uh, you could buy armor from them or weapons from them. And that's generally how, and that's how you got access to the better gear. Normally it was actually buying it. So, you know, the item management can be kind of daunting, especially if you don't know what you're doing, but it gets a lot easier the more you work with it. The weapon mods were kind of cool. I know I'm coming back full circle to weapons, but the way they did weapon mods was pretty cool. So, and armor mods too, actually. So the way the mods work is lower level items had access to bare minimum mods. Some weapons and armors had access to new mods. Mods being modifications, of course. So you take the very base level assault rifle. You had a mod slot and an ammo slot. Your mod slot could be a combat scanner because there are enemies that could jam your radar. It could be a heat sink, which helped with keeping your uh, weapon for overheating. I'll get back to that in a minute. Damage increases, stuff like that. And in your ammo slot would be stuff which all the ammos had different abilities and you had to have ammo equipped. 
ammo made the game. The different ammo abilities made the game. It helped you get through the game. So there'd be stuff like phasic rounds, which penetrated shields and did damage straight to the enemy you're shooting at, but it was at a decreased rate. Or you could have incendiary rounds, which did fire damage over time. Or acid rounds, which did the same, but the way it did damage was a little bit different. Or ice rounds, which turned them into ice, or which would freeze your enemies. Or uh, armor piercing rounds, which did more ammo or did more damage to uh, uh, synthetics for some reason. Why it didn't? Why an armor piercing round doesn't do more damage to a person? I don't understand. But so all the different weapon modifications, you know, helped. Uh, you only had you could at most you could only ever use one ammo mod. Your higher level gear weapons had access to two regular weapon mods. And then, with your armor, you had different mods that did stuff like, you know, increased your shields, made you more resilient to certain stuff, blah, 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 blah. It was the same way around. The more, uh, the higher level, the more armor mods you had access to. And, you know, you could get a set of armor that had really good damage protection, but the shields weren't great. You throw a couple shield modulators on there, and that's the best armor. You know, you can't. You don't take a whole lot of damage. You might have act. You might have issues with antibiotic enemies, but you're not going to take a whole lot of damage. At least, you know, <laughs> you'll take damage. I mean, you can take damage, but I mean, you're not going to take damage at a rate that you know someone who's not doesn't have that. They also had some cosmetic things like, oh, put your helmet on, take your helmet off, take your helmet on, take your helmet off. The helmet has zero effect on. Your gameplay stats, from what I can tell. But there are sections where your helmet has to be on, and it's the full visor, and it's the visor and the closed thing. That's for when you're in a zero oxygen environment, a vacuum, or no, just you know, any situation. Not, it doesn't even necessarily have to be a vacuum. But like I said, that, that has zero effect on gameplay. Something I didn't talk about in combat was the way ammo works. There is no ammo in the game. You, like I said, you have ammo mods, but that doesn't affect your ammunition because you don't run out of ammo. You never run out of ammo. Combat works with a heat sink ammunition scale. So what that means is the more you fire a weapon, it builds up heat. And when it reaches a certain heat level, it overheats and you can't use the weapon anymore. So things like adding a, a heat sink to your weapon you can fire the weapon more times and that was kind of cool and it works in the lore because in the lore I'm getting ahead of myself I'll come back to that <laughs> uh, but like I said it's lore friendly in later games they change it up to where it's an ammunition based and they have reasons for it in the lore but they make fun of it they also make fun of it later on that's all stuff for another time um as far as I know, that pretty much covers everything gameplay-wise. Like I said, the gameplay is probably the part that has aged the worst with Mass Effect, other than, well, the graphics haven't even aged that bad. Combat is just, it's not bad by any means, it's just, it feels really old. And just about everyone's hoping that they find some way to 
freshen it up a bit for Legendary Edition. I'm not really sure how they're going to do that. It'd be really cool uh, if they managed to, but I can't tell you how much they're going to freshen it up. Part of the reason why they said it's delayed is because the first game is taking them the longest to work on, but I don't know to what level they're going to be working on. We'll see, I guess in March. <laughs> uh, they said that it leaked that the game's coming out, that Legendary Edition's coming in March. We haven't gotten an official date yet. We haven't gotten a trailer, we haven't gotten any gameplay, which isn't concerning, but I would like to see that stuff. I mean, we did get a trailer, but we haven't gotten gameplay. But that's stuff I want to see. But we're not talking about Legendary Edition today, we're talking about the original version. All in all, combat is the only thing that's kind of holding it back at this point. There are people that play it for the combat. Honestly, on the harder difficulties, the combat's really interesting, but it doesn't hold my attention like the combat of 2, 3, and Andromeda. It's kind of a contentious point here. Every game kind of has its contentious points, but we'll kind of get into that. I mean, we'll get into some of the controversies at a later time. From Mass Effect, Secondary Codex, Humanity and the Systems Alliance, Timeline, 2069, Armstrong Outpost at Shackleton Crater becomes the first human settlement on Luna. It is formally founded on July 24th, the 100th anniversary of the first lunar landing. 2103, Lowell City in Eos Chasma becomes the first human settlement on Mars. 2137, Eldfell Ashland Energy Corporation demonstrates helium-3 fuel extraction from the atmosphere of Saturn. 2142. Construction of the Gagarin station, Jump Zero, begins beyond the orbit of Pluto. 2148. Prospectors discover the Prothean ruins at Promethei Planum on Mars. 2149. Translation of Prothean data leads humans to the Quran mass relay. Systems Alliance founded to coordinate exploration and colonization of extrasolar worlds. 2151. A shipping accident at Singapore International Spaceport exposes downwind communities to containers of dust form Element Zero. Alliance begins construction of Arcturus Station. 2152. Roughly 30% of the children born in Singapore after Element Zero exposure suffer from cancerous growths. Systems Alliance begins settlement of Earth's first extrasolar colony world, the planet Demeter. 2154. Commander Shepard, born. 2155. Systems Alliance occupies completed portions of Arcturus Station as a headquarters. 2156. Some children of Singapore exhibit minor telekinetic abilities. 2157. Turians encounter human explorers, first contact war. Occupation and Liberation of the Human Colony, Shangxi. 2158. Humans learn potential of biotics. An international effort to track element zero exposures begins. Roughly 10% of exposed children show some level of biotic ability. 2160. Systems Alliance Parliament formed. 2165. Humans establish embassy on Citadel. 2170. Butarian slavers attack the Alliance colony of Mindwar. 2176. 
Scillian Blitz. Pirates and slavers attack Elysium, the human capital in the Scillian Verge. 2177. Thresher Maws devour the Alliance colony of Akuz. 2178. In retaliation for the Scillian Blitz, an Alliance fleet wipes out an army of slavers on the moon of Torfin. 2183. Current date. Okay, so I'm going to start getting into the story here. Um, I'm obviously still looking at the Mass Effect wiki. So when the game starts, when the, ver the game, very beginning of the game, you get to go through this whole... It's kind of cool how they do it because it builds into the story and the lore. So you start off, you can just create a random... You can just take the generic Commander Shepard, male or female, I think. Have a standardized background of a soldier, or you can pick your own background. I like doing that. Uh, the way the background works is there's two sections to it. There's your basically it's like your birth history, and then your career record. So your birth history, you have three options. You have Earthborn, you have Spacer, and you have Colonist. The Earthborn was born on Earth, obviously, but they were an orphan. Uh, they grew, they ran in gangs when they were a kid. They got up to trouble and stuff like that. When they got to age of you know the age to where they can enlist, they enlisted and got off, got out of the slums. Uh, your spacer, they grew up with a family that was in the Alliance Navy. They you know one of your parents is actually still alive, and you can talk to them several times throughout the series. Basically, it's just the standard military kid background. You join the military when you turned 18. You got an education, blah, 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 blah. And then your colonist, you grew up on, like, I think they said, straight up say it's a farming colony. And then when you were a teenager, your colony was attacked by Batarian slavers. Batarians being the four-eyed aliens that actually have some interesting lore. I'll get into them later. They, you know, they enslaved most of almost all of your colony, you managed to escape, but you saw a lot of your friends and family get taken away or die. You managed to evade them long enough for the Alliance to show up and were saved by, funnily enough, a character who is, well, not necessarily a character, but you are saved by a ship that is referenced in the Spacer origin, it, which is kind of cool. It's kind of fun, them intersecting. Again, you know, that, that's all other, you know, that I like how they have the kind of intersections there. And in your career history, you have Heroic, you have uh, Soul Survivor, and you have your uh, Ruthless. So your Heroic one, you went to, you were on shore leave on a planet called Elysium. Morbitarian Raiders attacked, and you managed to string together your family's or not your family, <laughs> here, the fort's defenses and held them off long enough for Alliance forces to get there and drive them away. And your actions there made you a hero and you got a medal and generally everybody knows who you are because of that. The Soul Survivor one, which is the default, if you just pick a default shepherd, it's Earthborn and Soul Survivor. You were on a scouting mission on a planet called a Coos, and your entire platoon was beset by Thresher Maws, the giant Chinese dragon praying mantis things. 
and you're the only one to survive. There's some PTSD, they talk about some PTSD stuff with that in the gameplay, in the game, but I'll get into that. And then you also have Ruthless. Ruthless, you were part of a series of missions looking to root out the Batarian slavers that have been causing all these shenanigans for years. You're part of the mission to get rid of them, and basically on this on a battle on this moon called Torfin, you led a squad of elite soldiers and to root them out, and you just plowed through them, killed all the Batarians, but along the way you also lost almost all of your almost all of your squad, if not all of your squad, and you were kind of branded as they called you the they start calling you the Butcher of Torfin. Cool nickname. I mean, you got the job done too, of course. And then they do something cool where each of the uh, birth histories line up with a uh, career history. So, Earthborn and Soul Survivor fit together pretty well. Um, there, and it, when I was talking about your personal history, there's added dialogue in each of them. Uh, I haven't dug those up, but this is it's it's uh, it's really short. If anything, it's like a couple of words that kind of together a little bit better but you don't see any other ones so earthborn and soul survivor go together uh spacer and war hero i think that's what it's called go together you basically you're the pride of the alliance your family was alliance your alliance you're you did heroic deeds it's great things there's a couple of lines in there and then you have colonists and ruthless your family was killed by batarians you made it a personal vendetta to wipe out these slavers. And you can actually have, you can roleplay this pretty well throughout the series where you just hate Batarians for what they did to your family. Even though not all the Batarians did it, but you can hate Batarians for what happened to you. And you actually show some PTSD from it. Or you can not show it if you want. It's really up to you how you plan to do that. So, and you select all these, and then, you know, you create, you go through your character creator, you select your class, and the whole reason why you do this is because when you were, it was like you were going to log into your terminal, is how it starts, or you were looking at your, at Shepard's profile, and you had to reconstruct the profile. So it's like there's a glitch in the internet, and you had to reconstruct Shepard's profile, which, that's all really cool. I like that a lot. That's one of the coolest openings, and you know, it's all voice acted and stuff. So that was all cool. That's just the very opening. So it's, after it goes from that, it goes to Shepard standing on the Normandy overlooking Earth. Normandy being the ship you're on. You have a couple of characters. It's um, Donnell Udina, David Anderson, and Stephen Hackett. Uh, Udina is a politician. He's an ambassador to, to the Citadel from the Alliance. Anderson is your, uh, he's a captain of the Normandy, he's your mentor. Like I said earlier, they kind of dive into his story a little bit more in the book, Revelations, which I'll actually be talking about that at some point. Uh, and then Admiral Hackett is, um, he's the admiral of the fleet that the Normandy is supposed to be going to. And he's kind of like, I think he's actually your CO. Not like your direct CO, but like overall he's your commanding officer. Throughout the game, you answered him a lot. So they kind of discuss they discuss your background. They discuss all the stuff. If you're well ready, if they think you're ready for it, 
uh, then they say make the call, and then you get the opening title scroll, which is in the year 2148, explorers on Mars discovered the remains of an ancient spacefaring civilization. In the decades that followed, these mysterious artifacts revealed startling new technologies enabling travel to the furthest stars. The basis for this incredible technology was a force that controlled the very fabric of space and time. They call it the greatest discovery in human history, the civilizations of the galaxy call it, and then you get the title Mass Effect. Uh, it goes from that to the Normandy traveling through the solar system, which is our solar system. And you see some of the planets, and it comes up to a mass relay, and music crescendos, and off goes the Normandy across the galaxy. That's just how the game starts, and it was an amazing start for the game. Uh, go from there, you get some short conversations, you find out there is a Turian. Turians are... Everybody calls them bird-like, but I always see that more cat in they do have some bird features, but for the most part, I see cat, especially in Saren. <laughs> He's a Terry inspector. He's there on the ship for some reason. Uh, they talk about it a little bit. They don't talk about it a whole lot at this point, but they talk about it later that the Normandy was co-developed by humans and Terrians. They have design features from both. You have, this is where you're kind of introduced to Joker and to Kate. They're kind of, you know, bullshitting about it. You can bust their chop. You can bust Joker's chops for it. You can kind of agree with them and talk to him. Found out Anderson wants to meet you in his office. Uh, you can run into some other characters along the way. Presley, who ends up being your executive officer, talk to him a little bit. He talks about being uncertain why Dallas is even on the ship. Uh, you can run into your chief medical officer, uh, Doctor Chakwas, and a soldier named Richard Jenkins. They're discussing it. Chakwas, Chakwas is trying to get Jenkins to chill because he's being overly dramatic about stuff, which he apparently tended to be, and basically calm his theories about why they're there. Jenkins is kind of being uh, overzealous, and you find out you're going to a planet called Eden Prime. Well, Jenkins is actually from Eden Prime, and he knows a little bit about it. He gives you a little backstory about Prime, Eden Prime. Go into Anderson's office, and Nihilus is waiting for you. Yes, what you know about Eden Prime, you can tell him it's basically a paradise, or you can basically tell him to shove off. <laughs> I love the dialogue system in <laughs> Mass Effect, it's great. There's so many options, usually. And then uh, you find out that he's expecting trouble. Not sure why, but he, he's also always expecting trouble, which I mean, his job as a Spectre, which Spectre is basically a. Secret agent, they're the Citadel Council, which is the council of the government that rules the Citadel. The Citadel is like the center of government for all the species in the galaxy. That's some lore for you. I'll deep dive into that some more later. Basically, he's like the first and last line of defense for the government. He they send them out on mission on specific missions that they the Citadel themed specters are needed for. Sometimes they don't even send them out on missions. Sometimes they just let them roam around, do whatever the hell they want. As long as it's in the name of protecting the Citadel's interests. But a lot of times they send them out on missions. Uh, Nihilus is out on a mission. Not sure what it is. Anderson shows up and Nihilus informs you, or they inform you that they're there to evaluate Shepard. Got a Spectre. It is something that humanity has been pushing for for a long time. Ever since humanity came into... Galactic politics, 
They've been kind of ahead of the curve as opposed to other races, but they've also are more aggressive about it. They know they're ahead of the curve, and but they're being treated like they're newcomers, which they are new. Humanity are the newest race here, but they're also so far ahead of the curve of where the other races are were. It's kind of cool, actually. It's interesting. No, I wouldn't say cool. It's interesting. So Nihilus is there to evaluate you. You find out shortly after that Eden Prime, or that you're going to Eden Prime because they unearthed another Prothean beacon. Protheans were the ancient spacefaring civilization mentioned in the opening scroll, and there could be untold technology in there. Who knows? Like it's very important that you get there, you pick it up, you bring it back to the Citadel. Shortly after this, you find out that Eden Prime is under attack, likely to recover the Prothean beacon. Everything kind of changes. At this point, I think it's hinted at, but if you walked around the Normandy a little bit, you can find out that the Normandy is actually a scout reconnaissance ship. It can, it's very fast and it's very quiet and it can basically disappear. I'll get into how it disappears later. Uh, Anderson tells Joker to get them there fast and quiet. They need to hurry up and get there. They're also the closest ship responding anyway, so it's not like anybody else can get there before them. Uh, so you get there, Anderson gives you a short briefing in the loading area. Nihilus runs off ahead. You land with uh, K. Malenko and Richard Jenkins on Eden Prime. Some short conversations about, uh, there's some wildlife in the area. You come around the corner and Jenkins gets shot and killed right out the gate <laughs> by a uh, floating, by a sentry gun. Uh, it's not really a sentry gun, it's like a sentry uh, bot. It's like a little robot riding around, that has, flying around that has a gun on it. He gets taken out right out the gate. So you have to deal with, you know, you have to either calm down Caden or tell him to, you know, be mad about it, take his anger out on the enemy. Go a little bit further ahead and then you see a female soldier running away from these turrets, not turrets, but they're sentry guns, whatever they are, the sentries, and um, she takes them out, but then she sees regular foot soldiers right behind them, and they have a guy, and they're lifting him up onto something, and then a spike pops up through his chest. She's obviously distressed, she runs and hides behind a rock, but they see her, and they're chasing her. At this point, uh, you as... Shepard and Caden have to take out these enemies. And then you talk to the character that's when you're introduced to Ashley Williams. Who, you know, at this point, Caden is your sentinel in the group. Ashley is your soldier. Because each there are characters that fill in for each of your classes in the game. Ashley's your soldier. Uh, you find out that they she was security for the beacon. And that the creatures that showed up are known as Geth. Geth are synthetic life forms that drove their creators off their planet and out of the system they, their ancestral home system. Um, and they haven't been seen outside of that area of space in like a millennium. It's been a cool thousand years. <laughs> Uh, and nobody knows anything about them other than that they have flashlight heads because their heads have a little flashlight looking thing. I'm trying to figure out why they're there. 
going ahead, you meet some people, you can potentially punch somebody. You have no idea where Nihilus is at. Um, you find some more people uh, spiked, and then you come to one area that's right before you can punch the guy, actually. Um, the spike's lower, and two enemies get off the spikes, and it shows that they're called husks. Well, they're he they were humans, but now they're filled with cybernetics, and they run at you, and they have shields, and they can discharge electricity at you, which does actually a fair bit of damage, and they're pretty resilient to gunfire. Take them out, you talk to the people, you potentially shut the guy who punched the guy who's freaking out. Come around the corner, you get a short cutscene of Nihilus sneaking up on this little port. He sees somebody he knows. It's another Terrian. Another Terrian Spectre, actually. Named Saren. Uh, he obviously knows him. He says, he's mentions being freaked out that he's there. Or not freaked out, but uh, surprised that he's there. Because Nihilus and Saren are close friends. Nihilus turns around, and Saren shoots him in the back of the head. Big shot. Or it's not really a... At this point, it's kind of a big shot. Because you don't really know that Saren is the bad guy. Like, you know, but you don't... Story-wise, you don't know. So you continue around this corner, and you see this massive ship off in the distance. And it's got electrical spi or electricity spiking or spiking off of it, and it rises out of space up to space. And your squad mates mentioned being awestruck by the size of it. And it kind of lets out this some strange mechanical sounds that it's rising up. Uh, you fight through some more enemies. You find a uh, you get up to the port. You find a guy that was hiding nearby, who'd actually been asleep through the whole thing, kind of. Kind of got lucky there. This is when you're told that Saren shot Nihilus in the back of the head. You know who Saren, You now know who Saren is. Your characters are aware of Saren and that he killed Nihilus. Don't know why, you just know that he did and that he's there working with the Geth. And that he went to the Beacon. Well, now you have to get to the Beacon because you don't want the Beacon to get destroyed or taken away. Well, you're already going there, but now you know somebody is actively working. So you go over there, Saren's already gone and has activated the beacon. The Geth are there and they're planting charges all around the dig site. Kill the Geth, you stop the charges, you inspect the beacon. The character, your human squad mate that is the opposite sex of you, gets caught in an activation field from the beacon. So if you're playing as female, Caden, if you're playing as male, Ashley. Uh, go and you save them. Shepard gets stuck in the activation field instead and has these crazy visions from the beacon showing uh, synthetics, killing humans or not humans but organics and something that looks awfully similar to the ship that you saw coming towards you. You wake up sometime later. Apparently you blacked out and were out for a couple days. Or a couple hours, several hours. Um, uh, you find out that Anderson had Ashley transferred to the ship. Chakwa says everything's fine. You were having really weird dreams. You start remembering your dream. You start hearing some voices in your head. You tell Anderson. Anderson's believes you, but there's not enough information to go on. Then you find out that the Normandy's head. You can go talk to your squad mates. You find out the Normandy's heading towards the Citadel. The Citadel again being the center of galactic government. 
You get there, they don't. The council doesn't believe you that Saren, their best specter, apparently, has turned on the has turned rogue. They don't believe you. Your your evidence is circumstantial at best, anyways. So at this point, you have to go and find evidence to support your claims. On your way up, you met a Terrian named Garrus who was investigating him. He he works for Citadel Security. His boss tells him to stop the investigation because there's no credible evidence that Saren did anything. Well, Garrus doesn't like that because Garrus is Garrus. We get to know Garrus more as the series goes on. At this point, you can go and meet Garrus in person and uh, kind of recruit him to your squad. He's like investigating something and kills some guys and who were criminals and took a doctor hostage. But uh, he's a little bit of a rogue, so he can join your squad then. Your information points you to a guy named Harkin, who is at a club uh, called Flux. No, Cora's Den. Flux is later. <clears throat> at Cora's Den. Go there, Cora's Den's a shady place or are shady looking people. It's obviously a strip club. Uh, you meet Harkin. Harkin's been suspended from CSEC. So they're all security. I think he actually is the one that points you to Garrus. When you go to meet him, uh, you bump into a Krogan. Krogan are big turtly guys who is there to see Fist. And obviously, he's obviously there to kill him. And <laughs> he's kind of intimidating. Well, when you go to talk to Harkin, he tells you that Anderson used to be a Spectre, which isn't true. He was a Spectre candidate. You get that information later. So, blah, 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 you go, you talk to Garrus. He points you to go find that Krogan named Rex. Uh, you go, you recruit Rex, who is down in Citadel Security, who they... You can recruit him, you can wait till later. Either way, you're going to recruit him. I usually just go and pick him up, because I like Rex. <laughs> so you go, you meet Rex, he's having a tiff with Citadel Security. They're telling him to leave this alone, he's like, you can't make me do shit. <laughs> I'd like to see you try to stop me. Get him along. You can take him with. If you take him with you, he straight up just kills Fist. After, because you're going to talk to Fist because he has information that could point to that could incriminate Saren because he broke off with the information broker, the most powerful information broker, whose name is the Shadow Broker, to join with Saren, and Shadow Broker hired Rex to kill Fist. Rex doesn't leave his jobs half done, so we bring him along to confront Fist. He kills Fist. So you go back to Cora's Den. There's an assault. You fight your way through. You find Fist. If you have Rex with him, he kills you. You take a, uh, it's basically a USB drive with you. Or you can find a USB drive, which that has nothing to do with the main story. It's just a reporter who asked for it. It's a side mission. Uh, he tells you about a Corian. Corians were the people that created the Geth. They live in space and they all live in spacesuits because their immune systems were ruined by living in space. So he tells you that she has information on Saren and that he had sent some people to pick her up because she came came looking for him for safe harbor, not knowing that he worked for Saren. You have to race across, not all the way across the Citadel, it's like back across the uh, nightclub and down a hallway. <laughs> You go over there, you find her being meeting these people who are obviously there to kill her. You kill the you kill her attackers, 
Um, she joins the group. She has inf- she has the information. She has on record Saren saying that he attacked Eden Prime and says something about one step closer to uh, reviving the Reapers or bringing back the Reapers. He doesn't say that his companion says that. There's a, a woman who is obviously very mysterious at this point. <clears throat> you later find out her name is Matriarch Benezia. Matriarchs are an Asari creature, or not an Asari creature, but are an Asari that have lived for a long time and they've basically become counselors. I say counselors because she is voiced by uh, <laughs> Marina Sirtis, who played Deanna Troy, who was a counselor. Uh, <laughs> I think it fits. Anyways, so you find out, you know, she, basically she's counseling Saren on all this, on bringing back the Reapers, and you don't really know why. And um, you don't really know what the Reapers are. Shepard has some inclination of what the Reapers are from the, the Beacon. He thinks that, or they think that, that they are what wiped out the Protheans, which technically ends up being right. Um, according to Tally, when she, she got this information from a geth she found and killed, preserved its memory core before it fried it, and because when they die, they fry their memory cores, apparently. So she pre- preserved the memory core. One of the, part of the information was that the geth revere the Reapers as gods, the next stage of synthetic evolution. It's what they hope to ascend to. So, obviously everything's, you know becomes much more serious. So you take this information back to the Citadel Council, they analyze it, and like, yeah, this is, you know, this is the proof you were, we needed and you showed it to us. So Saren is stripped of his Spectre status and he is officially rogue and we're gonna send another Spectre out to bring him in or kill him. Well, they, have, they argue about who should do it because they don't really know anyone that could do it or should do it. Well, they suggest Shepard. Well, Shepard's not a specter. Well, they say, Shepard, you can convince the counselors, the uh, Citadel Council, to make you a specter in order to bring Saren down. So they authorize you as a specter. You become the first human specter. And, you know, there's this grand scene, and you can make a speech. It's really cool. So at this point, you get access to the Normandy to go, come and go as you please. Uh, there's some side missions on the Citadel, which the side missions for the most part don't play a huge role. There's a mission with an AI, um, that's kind of cool. Uh, there's some, there's some lore building stuff, but for the most part, the side missions don't really play into the overall story. There are some later on that do, like when you meet Admiral Kahoku, and he talks about a splinter group called Cerberus. I'll get into that when I get into the lore. Also on the Citadel, there is a mass relay monument in the middle of it that apparently when you walk by, it hums. That comes important later. <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself, but that becomes important. But Anderson uh, gives the Normandy to you because you know this, crew, you know the ship, you know the crew. They all respect you because you were the executive officer before, um, and now you're a specter, and they have an important job to do. You bring your alien friends on the ship because Tally the Quarian has now joined your crew because she was on her pilgrimage 
which when Quarians become to a certain age, their rite of passage to adulthood is to go on a pilgrimage and come back with something to help the, the flotilla. Um, but part of it is she senses it's a higher duty for her. All that, you go on the ship, uh, you give your rousing speech, or just like, no, we're going to do this and we're, we're going to get it done. <laughs> uh, so you leave the Citadel. At this point, you have... You're given three missions you can do. If you have the DLC, of course, you can go do Bring Down the Sky, which is just stopping an asteroid from crashing into a planet. And there's some stuff with Batarians that is pretty interesting. Then there's uh, a combat arena that you can do, which, like I said before, the combat's not the great best, so the combat arena is actually kind of boring. It gives you some cool gear, but that's about it. So you can do those, but your main story is built is scattered across the three missions that it's given you here. So you're given the option to go find Matriarch Benezia's daughter, Dr. Liara Tassoni. She's on a she's a Prothean expert, she's an archaeologist, and she's on a dig site. You can go find her. There's reports of a colony called Pharaohs that has been attacked by the Geth. You can go there to look for evidence. Matriarch Benezia herself was sighted on a planet called Novaria. Novaria is an ice planet that is used for corporate reasons. A lot of places go there, a lot of co companies go there and lease out uh, labs from the from the Novaria government and they do secret research on this planet. So you have your options right there. I'm gonna go through them in the order that I normally do the missions. So right out the gate, I always go and get Liara because is completing your squad as early as possible. I like doing that. So, go to Therum. Uh, Therum's the only, quote-unquote, uninhabited world that you go to. That's a main mission. Um, so you drop down on the Mako, driving around. Holy shit, there's Geth. <laughs> and there's lots of Geth. And they're dropping uh, armatures, which are like little mini battle tanks, all over the place to fight you. And you're fighting off, you know, ground troopers. And then eventually come face to face with a, in the Mako with the Colossus. The Colossus is a larger armature class unit. And that's all the way up until you get to the actual dig site proper. Um, when you get to the dig site, then the whole place is abandoned. There's no humans, court, uh, Turians, Solarians, anybody around. Uh, you get to the dig site proper, you have to fight your way through some more Geth. The uh, canyon area I mentioned earlier is in this section. Um, which that area is kind of frustrating. Uh, you go up a little bit, you fight a claw, you fight an armature on foot, which is kind of a hard fight, especially really early. And you're also introduced to the Geth Sapper units, which are kind of cool because like it's one of the only units that isn't brought back in future games. Um, they're smaller, they're agile, and they their main purpose is to debuff you and like block your sensors. They're really cool, they have awesome designs, but you never see them again after this game. It kinda sucks, because I like, the, like I said, I like their designs. You go into the uh, dig site proper, which is like down a mining shaft, because they mine in the ground a little bit to find the Prothean ruins. Um, you fight through some more Geth. Uh, you find Liara, but she's on the other side of a barrier curtain, and she's trapped in a uh, Prothean uh, defense bubble. So, like, 
she accidentally activated the power and the bubble came on and captured her in, and she can't move. So she tells she asks for your help. You can kind of grill her a little bit, and she's like, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Get me out of this bubble, please. <laughs> so you go down a little bit, you fight through some more geth, and you find that like the whole side is blocked off, but there is a giant mining laser pointing at the ground underneath. Activate the mining laser, blows a giant hole in the ground. You go underneath, you come up, you let her out. Uh, you find out that doing so destabilized the volcano you were next to, apparently. <laughs> so it's about to go up. So you get her out, and you're like, oh crap, we gotta get out of here. Uh, you call the Normandy, the Normandy's on its way. Going up the elevator, and a big-ass Krogan walks out, and is like, uh, thank you for getting her, but um, we're gonna be taking her now. And then you have to fight him and kill him. He's kind of a tough fight because it's not just him. He's got a couple of gaff with him. Get through that. You escape, you know, just in the nick of time because the whole shaft is falling down. Um, get on the Normandy. Liara's obviously tired because she's been stuck in the bubble for an unknown amount of time. Joker makes a quip about uh, Normandy not being able to handle molten sulfur. <laughs> where his nickname comes from because he's a sarcastic bastard um i love that about him uh anyways so short discussion about liara she says she hasn't talked to her mom major benazi in a long time which asari love ex uh, exceptional long lifespans they live for a thousand years and she's barely a hundred she's like 106 at this point you can start talking to your squad mates a little more you can actually do this before this mission, but they don't start opening up until this point. Liara, is, you go to talk to Liara, she feels better. You can learn a little bit more about Asari, and she's kind of fascinated with you because of coming into contact with Protean Tech. Caden talks a little bit about his past history. Rex will tell you about uh, the Genophage, which I'll get into that with Lore and how that's... Oh, I should probably get into it now, actually. Uh, his race, the Krogan are a very violent race. They, several thousand years ago, they, after defeating a base of aliens called the Rachni, which were rampaging across the galaxy, they, the Citadel uplifted the Krogan to help fight them because they were built specifically, it was almost like they were built to fight the, the Rachni. And um, they seemingly uh, uh, forced the Rachni to extinction. And then they didn't really have a whole lot left to do, so they started fighting the only thing that they could fight, which was the Citadel. And they started invading planets and colonizing planets where people were already living on them. And it turned into what was called the Krogan Rebellions. And in order, and the Krogan Rebellions pushed the Council, the Citadel species, to the brink again. So what the Citadel decided to do? Well, actually, it wasn't the Citadel; it was the Turian military. Uh, they took a virus that the Solarians created called the Genophage. The Genophage made Krogan fertility, vitality rates, not vitality rates, fertility rates, uh, and they dropped them to one in 1,000. Now, Krogan, they have babies and clutches anyways, so not all of those babies survive to birth, or to adulthood, and the Krogan live on a hostile planet called Tuchanka, which has suffering from nuclear winter and has a lot of hostile creatures on it anyways. 
Krogan birth rates plummeted, and there are actually females who straight up cannot have babies. Like, they never are able to have living children. children. That has seriously affected their culture. Their culture is in decline because they're a warfaring race anyways. A lot of them are mercenaries. Rex has been around. Let's see, That I think they said that it wasn't a thousand years ago. It was less than a thousand years ago. Rex was around when that happened. When the genophage happened. Maybe not around when it happened, but he is old enough to remember the after effects of it. And he actually tried to, and he tells you all this, he tried to, and has been actively trying to get the Krogan up, to fit, get the Krogan back on track, and to stop focusing on doing stupid shit, stop going to war, stop fighting over stupid shit, just focus on having children for a couple of generations. And Krogan didn't like that, and his own dad tried to kill him in a, in a sacred meeting place with uh that's like a cro it's like a krogan uh, cemetery he took that personally <laughs> he pulled my uh, michael jordan aside and i took that personally and he killed his dad and he just went off and became a mercenary because he was tired of dealing with it at this point you can also talk to caden find out that you know he's an older generation biotic which means his implant is an older implant and because it's an older implant, he, the way it works is he's able to, he's still able to do stuff at a high level, but because of how it works, it is seriously painful to him. He suffers from headache. He, he suffers from serious migraines and muscle issues. Other people on that generation, it's called L2, there are people that are crippled from it. And there's like this whole thing, there's a whole mission later on with people with a band of L2s who capture a government official who's like uh, overseeing biotic reparations. And they capture him specifically to try to get him to authorize more reparations because they honestly need it because they can't do anything. They are disabled and like, yeah, they can lift up a lamp on the other side of the room, but they can barely walk. And they suffer from critical pain all the time. And you learn a little bit about him. He had a rough uh, training. Uh, he had... They hired a Tarian mercenary to train them. And he would beat his students. And one day he had enough of it, and he hit the guy in the face with a bot punch, and it killed him. And other than that, you know, Caden's and Caden's relatively well adjusted though. Like he doesn't have big emotional reactions. Um, you go and you talk to Ashley. You find out, you know, Ashley is kind of racist against. It's not really racist because it's against other species. She's xenophobic because she doesn't trust the other species after what happened to her grandfather. Her grandfather was a commander of a garrison on a planet called Shangxi. When humanity was first beginning traveling through space, they met the, when they met the Turians. The Turians attacked them because they were open, they were activating a master. They were blindly activating a master relay, and they 
for whatever reason, it just boiled over into war, and it became known as the First Contact War. Well, the Turians are very brutal. They're very brutal strategists. They don't give a shit about the repercussions for how they win wars, they just care about winning the war. Well, what they did on Shang-Chi, which was a planet, um, they cut off all outside communication and the garrison there was basically stuck within the fort. If, they, if there was any sign that they had left the fort, the Turians would drop a bomb on it that would destroy several city blocks. Uh, again, Ashley's grandfather was the commanding officer of that fort, and his people were starving. His people were sick. His people were injured. They had no way out. So he surrendered to the Turians in order to protect his people so they could get medical care and food and the stuff that they needed. Ew. He surrendered in the hopes that that would happen, which it ended up happening because the council has rules against withholding that stuff. Um, and in doing so, he became blackballed by the Alliance military. Uh, they basically, they, they demoted him and they put him on an office desk and anybody who was related to him that served in an alliance was basically blackballed as well. Ashley's father never got above ser uh, serviceman rank, and he only ever got shit postings. He barely got to see space before he passed away. Um, Ashley was who has high technical skills. She's a really good soldier. Like she has all these great skills and stuff. They put her on a colony world as security. Which, it was a farming planet. It was, a, it was supposed to be a safe farming planet. Basically, she got, she got put off on, a, on a, another ship posting and said, Here, you're, since your grandfather you know, did this, you know, this is what you get. That was how it was for her up until Anderson requested her transfer to the Normandy. After that, her career kind of turned around. She's obviously much more much more excited about it, but she doesn't trust hostile aliens. She doesn't have an issue with Tally because Tally is also kind of a child, but the Quarians aren't hostile. She doesn't really trust Garrus because Garrus, the Turians are kind of, they're not hostile, but they're aggressive. And then Rex specifically is kind of hostile and aggressive. Not necessarily to her, but the Krogans in general are. And she raises concerns about them. She also makes some not really nice remarks about Liara because she's kind of, at a couple points, it kind of seems like she's competing at least on the, as a male shepherd. Uh, I'm pretty sure it happens with as a female shepherd as well. As well. Uh, but part of... Ashley's story in Mass Effect, which I want to do, I'm, my next episode is going to be a deep dive on her character. I want to talk about her character. She goes through a, she, her character arc is pretty great. So she starts off, she's xenophobic, she doesn't like alien races, blah, 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 blah. You have a profound effect on her over the course of the game. 
or over the course of the series, actually. In the first, by the end of the first game, she has no issue serving under a Solarian uh, commander, and she will sacrifice herself to protect them. Um, she doesn't, still doesn't trust the council, which she ends up being right about not trusting the council, but she trusts the rest of the aliens enough to get the job done. Um, there's a part later on where Rex is very hostile and things can go badly, and she will, she has your back, which I mean, she kind of has to. She doesn't do it, it, to me, it doesn't seem like she does it because she doesn't like Rex. She does it because she knows she, she has to have your back. That's how it was to me. Other people might see it otherwise. It's whatever. Garrus, you find out, has been on, has been Citadel security for a while. Him and his father aren't on the best terms. Um, he could have been a Spectre. He didn't really think too much about it. He probably should have after, think, after you know, everything because he doesn't like being held back by red tape. Um, he tells a story about a, um, a particular uh, person he was chasing that was running weird experiments and growing body parts inside of people and how they got away and later you can go on and catch that person. Uh, Rex has his own story like that. These are the early loyalty missions. They only happen for three of the alien characters. Uh, Rex's old family armor was taken away, and some guy has it on a planet. He keeps it in like his. He keeps it displayed some or something, so you can go and get it back for him. Uh, Tally, you find out her dad is an admiral for the Quarian flotilla, so a lot is expected of her. Um. She has some issues with the Normandy being quiet because on a Quarian ship it's loud and if it gets quiet that means something's wrong. Her loyalty mission resides around uh, you get information that the Geth are planning an invasion in the Armstrong Nebula. You go and you stop the invasion. You get access to Geth data. It's data about the Geth that the Quarians have no that nobody has had access to. It's kind of about how they've kind of evolved a little bit over the time since the Quarians have left. And you can give that to Tally, and that's kind of her, how she completes her pilgrimage. So, that's just a little bit about the characters in there. From Mass Effect, Secondary Codex, Technology, Biotics, Biotic Amps. Biotics manipulate mass effect fields using dozens of element zero nodules within their nervous system that react to electric stimuli from the brain. Amplifiers allow biotics to synchronize the nodules so they can form fields large and strong enough for practical use. Amplifiers can improve a specific discipline or talent. An implant is surgically embedded interface port into which the amps are plugged in. On humans, the implant is usually placed at the base of the skull for convenient access though the user must be careful to keep it free of contaminants. Implant ports can fit a variety of amps, and there is a growing market for modifications and add-ons. The finest quality implants and amps are manufactured by Asari Artisans, but the Alliance's L3 implants, first deployed in 2170, are a significant step forward. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to part one of my Mass Effect Retrospective. 
Part 2 will be coming out shortly, so be on the lookout for that. So that's going to be it for me today, guys. Thank you so much for listening if you're this far along. Stay safe out there, and I should go. Logged. The commanding officer is ashore.